Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Well, folks, we did it. We made it through another year. It's hard to believe it's already the end of 2021, the second year of a deadly global pandemic, the year we witnessed a violent insurrection on our nation's capital, the year we got a new president and history-making vice president, the year we watched high-profile trials and awaited nail-biting verdicts. Much like 2020, 2021 was quite the roller coaster. So today we look back at the biggest moments of 2021 as told through our conversations on Stay Tuned and Cafe Insider. Thank you, as always, for your continued support of our work. We couldn't do this without you. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise. An original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. We will stop the steal. Twenty twenty one started with one of the worst attacks on democracy in American history. On January sixth, a violent mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol while Congress was certifying Joe Biden's presidential election victory. The insurrection left five people dead, including a Capitol Police officer, and it distressed, shocked, and outraged congressional staff, law enforcement, and the nation. We watched the unbelievable scenes unfold, wondering how any of it could be happening here in the United States. And um, what happened today? I'm not sure, but it looks like they stormed the Capitol. People broke through and uh, raced through the building, and then the uh, legislators got scared and left. So we didn't certify for Joe Biden, so that's good. On the evening of January 6th, my former Cafe Insider co-host Ann Milgram and I recorded an emergency episode of the podcast to reflect on the horrific events of the day. There was something about watching today what is supposed to be just a symbol and and the peaceful transfer of power turn violent. And we should talk about the images, but it, it did make me angry. And it also, you know, it made me heartbroken. I think our country lost. It's a very, very sad and I think 
deeply disappointing day for our country as a whole. Yeah. Look, we're not Belarus. No offense to the people of Belarus. You see people, you know, breaking down the doors, breaking down windows to get into the Capitol building, which you and I have spent a lot of time in, in our prior lives. A woman was shot and killed. We don't know all the details yet. There's a woman who's dead because this mob descended upon the Capitol and somehow were able to gain access, not only, you know, to the periphery of the Capitol, but they went to the House floor. They went to Nancy Pelosi's and office. And the Senate floor. And the Senate yes. floor. There's a picture I took, a screenshot I took of CNN, because I couldn't believe it. There's there's an armed standoff. I can't believe house, that picture on the, in the house, house of Representatives. On the House floor. And, you know, people engaging in, you know, all sorts of violence, people carrying guns. Into the United States Congress, where Into they're the prohibited Congress. by anyone other than so, law enforcement. Yes. I, I want to come back to something that you and I have been texting about all day, which is what was going on with the police force. But our friend Joyce Vance made a good point on social media earlier. And she said, you know, there will, there's time to talk about, and we should talk about, the lacking police presence and how they dealt with the rioters and the mob. But before we do that, we should acknowledge where the blame lies and who was fomenting this and who was inciting this. And I think even people who have been kind of silent about the president and pulled their punches about the president, even they today, you know, 14 days away from the end of his term, finally are acknowledging that the president is dangerous and the president has blood on his hands from this. Is there any other way of thinking about it? Remember that the president called on his supporters to come to Washington today for this specific event. And right. there was- Angrily, there was angrily. Considerable, angrily. And there was a lot of reporting about the president's call to action to get people to come to D.C. and that he's also been tweeting and out there in the media all week long talking about trying to get Pence to to not agree to certify the electors. And as, as we know, it's a pretty administrative role for the vice president. The vice president didn't have power to do what the president was asking him, but the president was calling on his supporters to show up. He then went to that protest today to address that protest. And he said, quote, And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down... We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. He encouraged his supporters at that rally to go to the Capitol. And there were already a large number of people who were at the Capitol. And it was shortly thereafter that people broke through barricades. They they went to the Capitol. And, and we should point out the violence of this. It's both that people were armed who entered the Capitol building. It's also that they took... It looked like, and, and there's been a lot of footage of this on the media, but they took plexiglass to break the glass. I mean, it's breaking and entering into a federal building. And it's not just any federal building. Like, this is the home it's of the, the seat United of democracy. where our laws are made. It is the, the seat United of States of America. Meanwhile, up on the steps of the backside of the Capitol, we're seeing protesters overcome the police the police are now running back into the Capitol building. 
We have cheers from the protesters that are watching behind the scenes. In the aftermath of the insurrection, Ann Milgram interviewed the former police chiefs of Camden and Philadelphia, Scott Thompson and Chuck Ramsey, about law enforcement's handling of the attacks. I think one of the other legitimate questions that I've heard asked in this process, and I myself have have observed, is one, as the commission just said, there's the issue of, of preparation and the lack thereof. But then the other is the response. And when you juxtapose it to the response, once there was the moment of contact between police and protesters slash rioters, if you were to put them side by side, the picture of January 6th looked a lot softer than it did in what law enforcement's response was to the Black Lives Matter movements on street corners across the country. And even when the Capitol Police were, they were on their back foot the entire time. And even when they were being attacked, there never seemed to be a response that was would be deemed to be excessive in its totality. And I think it was the head of the noble who said that if, if it was black folks storming the Capitol building, I think the statement was we would still be put in toe tags on bodies right now. Well, he's right. He's right, in my opinion. I mean, again, that's where bias comes in. That's where all these different things come to play. I mean, why didn't you even have undercover cops in the crowd? I mean, both at the rally and walking down Pennsylvania Avenue saying, hey, these guys are fired up. You better be ready because they're headed your way. You know, I mean, just simple stuff like that, you know, and apparently that was not the case. So, yeah, they were totally unprepared. Some of it had to do, no question in my mind, had to do with the race of the individuals. It had to do with the fact that they were right wing extremists as opposed to left. I I think all these dynamics played in, and that's where it it really points to one important thing. Police can't afford to get caught up in any of that stuff. You've got a job to do to protect the public, to protect that building in this case. Doesn't matter who it is. Your job is to gear up and be ready, no matter what. Don't get caught up in the political rhetoric and all this other stuff, or I think, oh, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, or what. That's not your job. And the minute you go down that path, you're going to have a problem. Here it is. Here it is right now. 217 uh, has just been reached. Uh, We've just witnessed a truly solemn moment in American history. The House of Representatives has reached the threshold for making Donald J. Trump the only president of the United States to be impeached for a second time. As the country continued to try to make sense of the events of January 6th, Donald Trump made history again. On January 13th, he was impeached for the second time. On February 9th, his second impeachment trial began. Representative Adam Schiff and my former SDNY colleague Dan Goldman, who helped to lead the first House impeachment effort, joined me for analysis of trial two for individual one. I don't see how anyone can conclude that that conduct that resulted in that attack on the Capitol is consistent with his oath, with his duties, with his presidential powers. But I, I, you know, I fully expect you can find a lawyer to argue anything and they will find a lawyer to make the contrary argument. If uh, the, the last four years have shown us anything, it is that, that Donald Trump will find people to carry his water, no matter how dirty that water may be. Yeah. 
And if I could just add a, a couple of th- additional considerations. Uh, one is, and, and I'm sure the impeachment managers will, will, gra- will grab this video, throughout the last four years, Donald Trump has quite overtly referenced physical violence and encouraged physical violence, and particularly at his rallies. So he has a curated macho reputation as being a tough guy who supports violence. I mean, Charlottesville, you know, was one example where he somewhat endorsed the violence by the the neo-Nazis. And there are other times where there were people um, getting protesters at his own rallies who he would refer to violence. I think that's relevant to what the impression of the protesters was and what their interpretation of the words is. The second thing, Preet, which you, I know, had experience with and would certainly push forward in a criminal trial is he talks like a mob boss. He is not going to use those words you referenced, like go you, you know, execute an insurrection, go riot, go storm the Capitol. He, he never would actually say those words, just like a mob boss would not say, go kill that person. The mob boss would say, you know, can you please take care of this? Take care of him, right. Exactly. <laughs> take and, care and, of it. And that's, that's when he says, go fight. Or, you know, if, they, if Mike Pence doesn't do the right thing, bad things will happen. That's violent talk. Everyone understands that. And if you have any question as to whether they understood it or not, just wait until we see all of the parlor videos from social media of the people who attended his rally, who were going to the Capitol and saying that the president told us to storm the Capitol. They understood what he was trying to say. The Senate voted to acquit Donald Trump for inciting the violence of January 6th, falling 10 votes short of the two-thirds majority needed to convict. Representative Joe Neguse of Colorado, who served as a House impeachment manager, joined Stay Tuned to discuss the case for holding the former president accountable. It's easy to forget now just how much of an exigent circumstance we were facing that day and in the days that followed. You literally had an insurrection to try to stop the peaceful transfer of power. President Biden had not yet been inaugurated. And there were many questions about whether or not that inauguration could ultimately occur peacefully just the following, you know, two weeks from then or a little less than that. And so, yeah, I, I think it was fairly clear to many in the Congress that uh, that we had to move forward, that we had an Article I responsibility under the Constitution to hold the president accountable for conduct that was so egregious. And, and obviously, several of our Republican colleagues ultimately agreed with that. And, and the fact that you had, you know, several Republicans very early, you know, on that evening, the next day, the day after, making clear that they concurred that in our assessment that what the president had done uh, was clearly impeachable, you know, that that obviously created an atmosphere in which there was support for impeachment that built. The tragic backdrop, of course, to all that has unfolded over the last few years is the pandemic. In February and March, the vaccine became widely available in the United States. I remember lining up to get my first jab at the Javits Center, observing how organized it all was. Things were looking up. But like the masks, the vaccine was immediately politicized, and the effort to vaccinate as many people as possible was significantly hampered by partisan backlash. Writer and surgeon Atul Gawande joined me on Stay Tuned to talk about the polarized response to the vaccine. Again, it's that problem I start with. It's pain now for gain later. That is incredibly hard. Climate change has this problem in spades. 
this is a problem where it's invisible and it has an effect in four to four weeks and you see the economic effects in eight to 12 weeks. And we have a hard time on that cycle. Climate change where things unfold in years of time are even harder to motivate people to take action. And you can always, when you're political, you're a politician, you can exploit you know, the group who is making a, uh, whose lives just changed, you know, the 20 to 50 year olds where mostly they're not getting significantly sick or are asymptomatic spreaders. They're driving the infection, but they are, they're not the, the people who are most afraid of dying. You can exploit their strong desire to get back to normal and say, it's just a flu. These guys are pulling the wool over your eyes. And we're going to, we're seeing this start to crop up in vaccination right now. The biggest indicator, the strongest indicator earlier on as vaccination was not yet approved and about to happen about whether people would want vaccination. Race was the strongest predictor of vaccine willingness or unwillingness. Now it's partisan affiliation, party affiliation. Have you ever seen anything like that before? No, it's stunning. It's been a trying time for Asian Americans, with hate crimes against them surging. At the end of March, tragedy struck. A shooter in Atlanta killed eight people, six of them Asian women. As an American and as an Asian American, this was heartbreaking and infuriating. Reports surfaced of a national increase in violent hate crimes against Asian Americans in the U.S. I spoke with professors Viet Than Nguyen and Janelle Wong, about the legacies of anti-Asian violence in this country and how certain political narratives can fan the flames. The origins of the Asian American movement were not just anti-racist, but also anti-imperialist, anti-war, anti-capitalist, and oftentimes pro-Marxist. And if you take those politics to their logical conclusion uh, today, you see that some versions of Asian American politics are not just about assimilation and becoming a part of the United States, but about contesting the very origins of the United States in violence and colonization and genocide. And this speaks directly to, I think, the very heart of the problem in American politics today. This is how we can go from a President Obama to a President Trump. You know, I think Obama, for me, represents this idea of assimilation and blending and multiculturalism. Trump seems to represent the assertion of a more white nationalist strand of identity, which is also fundamental to the United States. And Asian Americans are caught right in the middle of that tension. And that's that's also where we're caught right now with the question of anti-Asian violence. One set of responses to anti-Asian violence is to assert our belonging to this country, that we're Americans, you're not going to kick us out, we're going to defend ourselves as Americans. And another response is to say anti-Asian violence is absolutely fundamental to the United States because the United States has been violent towards every single racialized population in its history. Janelle, what do you think about that? I couldn't agree more. And I think the Asian American community is really at a kind of crossroads right now. We see greater attention, greater reporting of anti-Asian bias. And I think that is important because it is such a long history in the U.S. At the same time, I think that Asian Americans can either think only about themselves and the kinds of experience that's highlighted in the news right now, or the deeper connections with this history of white supremacy in the United States and the ongoing kinds of disparities, racial disparities we see 
in current days. The 2020 murder of George Floyd sparked a racial justice reckoning in the United States. This spring, his killer, Derek Chauvin, finally went to trial. Here are my reactions to the verdict I shared on the Insider podcast, recorded just minutes after it was announced. It's about 5.40 p.m. on Tuesday, April 20th. About 30 minutes ago, there was a verdict in the Chauvin case. Unanimous jury found beyond a reasonable doubt that former police officer Derek Chauvin was guilty on each of the three counts with which he was charged. Murder in the second degree, murder in the third degree, and manslaughter in the second degree. And I thought I would just react quickly to the verdict. First, reacting not as a lawyer or a prosecutor, but as an American and as a human being, I feel enormous relief and gratitude that the verdict was reached and it was guilty on all counts. I think we have been in something of a state of you know, suspended animation in this country about what would happen in this case, given the videotape evidence, given the common sense arguments that would be made in favor of conviction, that if, if this man couldn't be convicted, then what kind of justice could there be for anyone in this country, black, white, or otherwise, but especially if you're brown or black? There's no joy in this moment. I know there's some people who are celebrating, but it's very hard to, to be joyful when we had to go through this process to get this result at the hands of the law. Speaking as a lawyer and a prosecutor, you know, you never know what's gonna happen in a trial, but I'm not overly surprised. As I've been saying for the past couple of weeks, the case went in very strong. The evidence was strong. The performances by the prosecutors were strong. I think the defense lawyer made some missteps, some things that backfired, but at the end of the day, no amount of lawyering necessarily can do the trick. The facts are the facts. And Derek Chauvin shoved his knee into the back of the neck of George Floyd for nine and a half minutes until he was dead. Most importantly, separate and apart from this case, is the question of what police departments around the country will do. What message will they get? What lessons will they have learned? Lots of people are responsible for the result here. The prosecutors in the case, the judge in the case, who I think presided in a fair and neutral manner but also the other witnesses, and in particular, the bystanders, who, to a person, felt emotional and traumatized by having witnessed the murder of George Floyd. And now we can say, murder of George Floyd. And that's not alleged anymore. I've been seeing a lot of people use the phrase that's commonly used in these circumstances. Finally, there's been justice for George Floyd. And, and I'm not sure that's the right phrase to use, as a member of his family has said. George Floyd will never come back. George Floyd's daughter will never have her father to hug and to be around her. So justice for George Floyd kind of misses the mark. Justice for George Floyd would have been a system and a set of police officers treating him fairly and honorably and lawfully. And that didn't happen. And that's why he's gone. What we do have today is a form of justice, perhaps not for George Floyd, but within our system, justice in the form of accountability, which we don't see very frequently in circumstances like this. And for what happens next, what comes next for policing and for the country, as I heard Van Jones say a few minutes ago, this is the beginning of something. It's not the end of something. And that's important. You were told, um, for example, 
that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. You heard that testimony. And now having seen all the evidence, having heard all the evidence, you know the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. Once the trial wrapped, I had the privilege of speaking with the prosecutors in the Chauvin trial, Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher. You know, having uh, spent almost six decades as an African-American man, you know, seeing, seeing this, uh, I was just breathtakingly uh, stunned in, in the outrageousness uh, of it. Um, you know, what, what exactly could equal protection mean or what is the rule of law if there isn't some accountability for that? And at the same time, there was this uh, kind of uncertainty in your stomach uh, that nothing may come of this at all because we, we've been at this intersection before of, to me, outrageous uh, misconduct uh, imposed upon uh, you know black people, brown people, colored people uh, because of the immutable characteristic and, uh, and quite often the rule of law itself has protected that. And uh, so my initial gut reaction was uh, the, the, the sense of outrage, uh, the sense that uh, that's an earthquake uh, and what's coming next is a, a giant tsunami uh, in, uh, in public reaction. And, you know, I do a lot of work for Fortune 500, 100 uh, companies. And I'm one of the few people, some of them know that they would uh, categorize us in quotes, woke uh, for uh, the, uh, the, the white in-house counsel. So I expect that I might hear from a number of them just with their reactions, uh, what my thoughts might be. And sure enough, I did hear uh, from, um, from a number of them, two of them in tears uh, when they call. Um, and, and one of the statements I was told was, uh, it was so shocking to me as a white person because uh, I don't believe that ever would have happened to me as a white person. And there it is in my face. And they were simply shocked and stunned by it. So it was just the, the sense of the, the shock and the outrage uh, of the whole thing and the apparent, apparent callousness uh, of the, the police officers involved uh, was just stunning. We're trying the case to, to a jury, and, and we knew that you know, at the end of the trial, the world isn't going to be in the deliberation room with them. All that's going to be there is their collective memories of the evidence, the exhibits, uh, that we marked and entered into evidence, and those jury instructions, which are going to lay out all of the elements that they uh, have to find. And just in, in my experience trying cases, especially criminal cases, jurors take that very seriously. Um, they do not take those responsibilities lightly, and they pour over that stuff. And so, you know, we could, we could talk about those issues of, of racial justice and inequity, you know, then there's certainly a place for that. But that place is not in a criminal trial. In a criminal trial, um, what we need to talk about is the evidence, and we need to prove that case. And, and maybe that case becomes a springboard for some of those important issues to be discussed. And, and here, in, in, a, in a bigger, even in even bigger context, um, I was very conscious and aware that politically, we, we have a deeply polarized uh, country um, with, uh, along, racial, um, along racial lines. And if we allow the trial to become a referendum on any of these various political camps' views, uh, Blue Lives Matters, Black Lives Matters, and with the standard like reasonable doubt, I mean, we're toast. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if, if the jurors, any of them, 
uh, get fixed in their mind that this case is a referendum on some deeply held political point of view that they have, then they won't get off of that. And you only need one to lose. And so we had to, to really steer uh, the case away from the shoals of these deeply held sort of political views that jurors might have so that it can be tried just on the basis of the facts as relate to Mr. Chauvin and not fall into these sort of, you know, ditches of, uh, of, of political perspectives, which, uh, which I, I thought was fraught with peril for the prosecution if we allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Although endlessly fascinating, because what you have on the videotape is a white man's knee in the back of the neck of a black man killing him slowly over nine minutes and 29 seconds. And you, you came onto the case in part because, your feelings about, because of your feelings in part about racial justice. This case was about that to a large degree, but, but to get some form of, of, of justice and a first step towards ultimate racial justice, you had to stay away from that. Do you find that ironic at all? Well, in a way, pre. but on the other hand, it wasn't just Mr. Chauvin in the minds of the public that was on trial. It was the criminal justice system on trial. Yeah. And, and, and the public was on the edge of the chair. We can see what Mr. Chauvin did. But, but is where will the accountability come from in the criminal justice system? And, uh, and, and that is where I think the public was looking, having uh, sat through here in Minnesota, um, Philando Castile or Jamar Clark, uh, you know, fresh in the mind still, Rodney King. Um, we're, we're seeing is not even necessarily believing, uh, depending on who's on the jury. So uh, to me, the jury was out on whether this criminal justice system would actually do justice uh, in, in this instance. And that's really where uh, I think the public was, was focused. Of course, crises aren't only domestic, but also foreign. An early challenge President Biden faced was the United States military withdrawal from Afghanistan. Thirteen U.S. service members were killed during the mission. On a special episode of Cafe Insider, I spoke with NBC News' chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel, who was covering the situation on the ground in Kabul, Afghanistan. There's lots of bad things going on. Where are you and what is going on? So I am in a a very strange place. And I'm at the airport. I'm on the military side of the airport. And we're watching the evacuation process take place. And overhead, there are fighter jets. There are evacuation planes taking off and landing. And there are lots of troops and lots of contractors who are still here. I thought that the evacuation was going much more quickly. And I got onto this base today, and I was surprised at how many people are still here. And then all around the perimeter of the base, that's what makes it so strange and so surreal. So we are on what is effectively the last American base, last international base that is being evacuated. Still more people here than I expected. And then all around are refugees, people crowding to get in, people pushing around the entrances. So getting onto here was not easy at all because there are many people who on these flights, Afghan civilians who are trying to get here. And we saw those images yesterday and the day before of people bursting onto the civilian side of the airport, which is just a few hundred yards away, and then coming onto the military side. And then the rest of the city of Kabul is controlled by the Taliban. So you've referenced anger and frustration on the part of Afghans. I've known you for a long time. The public has known you for a long time. Fair to say that you're angry too? It's it's a different kind of anger. The Afghans are angry because they were building lives, they were building their future, they had expectations, 
they felt betrayed, that they were, they had a deal with the Americans, that the Americans were here for 20 years. They were, these were the ones who worked directly with them, had a deal that, you know, that was, and they're angered because they feel personally betrayed. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked at how disorganized it has been. I'm angry for them. I think that's fair to say. There's a difference between the decision to exit Afghanistan, which is why, by the way, quite broadly popular in the U.S., a difference between the decision to exit and the way it was executed. Given the context, and some people have been critical of, of critics of Biden who say, well, his hands were tied a little bit on the issue of exiting because there were mistakes made by Trump and Obama and others going back to Bush. Good. I'm glad you asked me that question because this allows me to go back full circle. You ask me, you know, does it be anger, does the emotion or the affect my objectivity? It's not to me to say, oh, we shouldn't have pulled out. I'm not dictating policy here. Nobody asked me. I'm a journalist, right? It's not up to me. I'm not elected official. Nobody elected Richard Engel, president of the United States. But I can tell you, having watched it, that the way it was carried out was sloppy. And the way it is being carried out is leaving many people behind. And that's objective. I, I'm watching it now. Whether you want to pull out, don't want to pull out, whether the, the war is going to work, whether it would have worked keeping 2,500 troops, which were more like 3,500 troops here, whether that was the right policy decision, you can endlessly debate that. But you can't really endlessly debate that this has gone well, that this pullout has gone smoothly, and that this is a, a glorious moment of transition. That's not debatable. On the question of exit, you tweeted yesterday, quote, President Biden says the failure in Afghanistan proves he was correct. Is that prayers? That is, uh, yes, there was a mock on the break, but, uh, but I, I, can, I can still hear you. Many were critical of the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the debates seemed endless. Frequent stay tuned guest and political scientist Ian Bremmer joined the show to have a good faith discussion about what happened. Another argument people make, and it's sort of bound up in discussion we've already been having, but I wonder what your response is. And I think some people are saying this because they want to see Biden succeed and they don't like the bad faith argument and they don't like the double standard as between Biden and Trump that they think is the case in some quarters. They say, look, some amount of this chaos would have been inevitable. And it's just the nature of the beast. And our mutual friend, Fareed Zakaria, has said, But none of that changed the fact that despite all its efforts, it had not been able to achieve victory. It could not defeat the Taliban. Now, could it have withdrawn better, more slowly, in a different season, after better negotiations? Certainly. But the naked truth is, there is no elegant way to lose a war. Fair point in some regards. Completely fair point. Um, I, I think that Biden, Biden's expectation after the policy review was that the Taliban was going to eventually take over, given Trump's decision. So in other words, the perhaps the most important effect of his decision, which is that tens of millions of Afghan civilians will live under a system of extraordinary repression. And the opportunities that the Americans and the coalition allies have spent literally billions and billions of dollars to try to provide for young Afghans to give them a shot at a future, that's gone. And that was the wholly expected and predicted outcome of the decision of the United States to withdraw, irrespective 
irrespective. There's another problem, but, right? There's, it's easier for you and me to say, trust the Taliban or not trust the Taliban. That assumes a certain amount of command and control within the Taliban, right? There have been stories, and Richard Engel talked about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. One could argue that the leadership of the Taliban appreciates the opportunities they have at this moment to be more reasonable, to coordinate, to cooperate while they're sort of in the limelight, uh, if that's an appropriate word to use. Not clear to me and not clear to others that that message of behaving, at least for the time being, has made its way all the way down through the ranks of the Taliban. Fair concern? I think, that is, I think that's fair to say. Uh, again, I mean, I think we have no idea. Is there a Taliban 2.0 that actually wants to engage constructively with the international community? Um, will their short-term political interests hold more sway over their ideological orientation? Um, how much hierarchy exists functionally within the present Taliban group and how stable is that likely to be? Will they continue to hold power or will Afghanistan devolve into civil war? And how much is an ISIS-K insurgency going to undermine the ability of the Taliban to get anything done whatsoever? How compromised is the Taliban government by ISIS operatives that are getting that information? Or are there bribes going on that, you know, sort of there's a, there's a ransom on the head of individual Americans? If you can get one, I mean, it would be a pretty big deal. But those couple hundred Americans still there, can we have some hostages? I mean, this would be a massive crisis for the United States, for the Biden administration, if they could pull it off. So I don't, I don't pretend that Biden is out of the woods on this, even now that all of the American servicemen and women have left the country. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. As I sit here today, I cannot help but think about my grandfather and my great-grandfather, both police officers who rose to become the chief of police in South Amboy, New Jersey. I know that they would be incredibly proud to see their granddaughter nominated to lead the dedicated, passionate, and tenacious professionals at the Drug Enforcement Administration. In April, President Biden nominated my dear friend and Cafe Insider co-host Ann Milgram to lead the Drug Enforcement Administration. The Senate unanimously confirmed Ann to her position in June, and we're so proud of the amazing work she is doing at the DEA. Extraordinary. There was no one better to replace Ann as my co-host on Insider than my friend and the former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, Joyce Vance. Joyce and I have discussed many high-profile trials on the Insider podcast this year. One was the trial of then 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, who in August 2020 killed two men and injured another during a night of protests over the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. This November, a jury accepted Rittenhouse's claims of self-defense and acquitted him of all charges. The fact that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted should not make him, in my mind, and there are people who disagree with this, but should not make him, in my mind, any kind of hero and wonderful, amazing paragon of virtue or conduct. And the fact that there are Republican members of Congress who are lionizing him and who have offered him jobs as an intern in their offices, I think is deplorable. 
Yeah, it's despicable behavior. For one thing, being acquitted doesn't mean that you're innocent. It just means that you're not guilty in the technical sense that the government failed to provide proof beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed the crimes you're charged with. That's a long way from saying that Kyle Rittenhouse doesn't, for instance, continue to be dangerous. And something that I'm watching carefully is how he behaves following this acquittal. He has, I think, an opportunity here to do good, but it seems clear that he's not interested in taking that opportunity. So let's talk about why he was acquitted, why it was not totally unreasonable for the jury to acquit, even though you at least thought that given a particular instruction that they were given, there was a possibility of conviction. And the main reason from a sort of 30,000-foot level is that what, what people don't always appreciate is the law dictates certain things that are different from what common sense tells you, right? So a lot of what this case came down to was a focused concentration on that narrow moment with respect to his shooting three people. And whether in that moment, notwithstanding, to some degree, notwithstanding the decision to come to another state, the decision to be carrying an AR-15, the decision to be in, a, in the midst of a lot of violence where lots of bad things can happen, you put yourself in that situation. Much of that, if not all of that, was off the table of consideration. But for the provocation point that you can elaborate on in a moment, and if the law is dictating that you're focusing on you know, the precise, narrow moment that Kyle Rittenhouse pulled the trigger those few times, the defense got to emphasize that with respect to one person, that one person had a gun. With respect to another person, he tried to take Rittenhouse's gun away, his rifle away from him. On the third occasion, one person who he ended up shooting was smashing his neck with a skateboard. And people that have differences of opinion of how dangerous it was and whether or not shooting those people was proportional or not. But those were the facts that the jury was compelled to focus on rather than the whole sort of larger context of why Kyle Rittenhouse was there. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And it's a really interesting question because I suspect you agree with this. The outcome of this case would have likely been different if the jury had been exposed to what I'll just call the whole ball of wax, right? The decision that Rittenhouse makes to come over in that entire context. If that had been part of the calculus for determining provocation, this could have been a different case. But as you say, the law imposes constraints. The judge instructs the jury on the law, and the jury's obligation is to follow the law as the judge gives it to them. Joyce and I also discussed the Ahmad Arbery murder trial. In 2020, three men killed Arbery, a 25-year-old black man, while he was jogging. In November, a Georgia jury convicted the three men of murder. The defendants argued that they were making a citizen's arrest, but the jury didn't agree. Critical evidence in the case was video footage of the incident. One thing that's important, I think, to mention here and step back, because a lot of people have said justice was done. It's always a peculiar thing to say, the phrase, and I think I said it at one point, some justice was obtained in connection with this verdict. Obviously, real justice would have been that Ahmaud Arbery was not killed in the first place for simply being black and running down the road. But the other thing that people may have forgotten, and we should remind them, this criminal case was almost never brought in the first place. There was one DA and then another DA who went out of their way to not bring the case. And in fact, one of the district attorneys has been indicted 
in connection with showing bias and favoritism in connection with this case. So, you know, while we applaud, at least I applaud the result in the case and the diligent prosecution that was well done and well executed, it almost never came to pass. You know, it only came to pass because there was this video that gets leaked to the press, I think not for the purpose that it ended up being used for. And so it's sort of a tortured path to justice. And one of my concerns is that this case will leave the news cycle and it will seep out of our collective consciousness and people will have this feeling that justice has been achieved. But I think the lesson of this case is that we have to always be vigilant if we want to make sure that we move towards having more justice in our system and and in our world. The search for justice continued in another area of public life. The January 6th Select Committee was formed to investigate and indict the perpetrators and instigators of the insurrection. I spoke with Representative Adam Schiff, a member of the committee, before a live audience at Cooper Union in New York City. We are at a very dangerous place. It was, as you, as you point out, that big lie that led people to attack the Capitol that day. But even more broadly, if you persuade people, as the former president and his enablers in Congress have, if you persuade millions of people that they cannot rely on elections anymore to decide who should govern, then what is left but violence? And what I, what I find so uh, awful about the period since January 6th is that when we saw where that lie brought us, when we saw the result of Trump and Trumpism was a bloody attack on the Capitol, even after that, the decision to double down on that lie is almost incomprehensible. And when you couple it with efforts now around the country to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give it over to partisan boards and officials. The combination of these two things, the lie and this frontal assault on the technocratic elections officials out there, it seems to me the lesson that Donald Trump and Republicans learned from the failed insurrection is that next time they will succeed, if not with a violent attack, they will succeed by making sure that if Brad Raffensperger wouldn't find 11,780 votes that don't exist, they will have someone in that position who will. You just used the word incomprehensible, which is, a, I think, correct and a fine word. But I want to ask you to, uh, to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist at the moment, not a politician, and, and give sort of in the light most favorable to the Republicans you're talking about an explanation as to why it might be that they're not willing to censure someone who posts violent imagery, but do want to censure someone and strip of committee assignments, like you said a second ago, people who voted for infrastructure, which reasonable people can differ about, and there was a bipartisan vote about. Like, I feel sometimes it's too easy when we say it's incomprehensible and we shake our heads, and explanation is not justification or excuse, but do you have a theory I do have a theory, and um, it's, it's the same uh, dichotomy, I guess, between understanding at a very practical level and not understanding at all at the, at the broadest level. And at a very practical level, they're terrified of a Trumpist primary challenge. Uh, at a very practical level, um, this is where the base of their party is. They have created this monster in the base of their party, which they now can't control. Um, they toyed, I think, after the insurrection with casting Donald Trump aside. You could see Mitch McConnell grapple with what he knows has been a ruinous 
leader for their party, um, someone who has destroyed so much of the institution that he served in for so long. But ultimately, they decided, um, McConnell among them, that if they tried to cast Trump aside, that they themselves would be cast aside. And, and I understand that at one level. But at another level, why are they there? Why did they run for Congress to begin with? What was the whole point? Uh, I watched uh, Steve Scalise, the number three Republican on Fox, about a month ago, he was on Chris Wallace's program, and he was asked three times by Chris Wallace, essentially, can you just say the election wasn't stolen? Now, you can't tell me that Steve Scalise doesn't know the election wasn't stolen, but he couldn't bring himself to tell the truth. And I think to myself as I watch that, I can't imagine that when Steve Scalise decided years ago that he was going to run for Congress, he said to himself, I want to run for Congress so that one day I can be part of a big lie that undermines the fabric of our democracy. But there he is. The January 6th committee's probe, like other investigations involving Trump and his allies, has been stumped by witnesses who refuse to cooperate. Former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon was one of the worst offenders. In November, the Justice Department indicted Bannon on two counts of contempt of Congress. Joyce and I discussed the case on a special episode of Cafe Insider. Do you think this has an effect on Bannon in terms of it changing his mind, or does he want to be a martyr like everyone says? So I'm in that that later camp, and I wrote a piece for Cafe.com probably uh, right when this all began to happen, suggesting that one of the real risks here is that uh, Bannon would embrace that sort of cloak of martyrdom and use it to rile up Trump's base. I think that it's very likely that that will happen and that it will be important that there's good messaging around that, maybe not directly from DOJ, but important for people to understand, for instance, on the Sunday show shows this weekend, some of the Republican talking heads weighed in and said, well, Bannon is being prosecuted for his beliefs and his speech, and that's un-American. And of course, that's not what's happening here. It's right? also non-speech. <laughs> I mean, he's being prosecuted. DOJ says it best in the indictment. They say he did not comply with the subpoena in any way. He, he failed to comply with the dictates of law that any other citizen, including you and me, would have to, and he was appropriately indicted for it. You know, you make a very important point on this, and I think it's worth elaborating on it. He didn't comply in any way. There's multiple things he didn't do. It just, it's not just that he blew off the subpoena. It's not just that he's not giving testimony or not giving documents. He's not answering basic questions like, has he conducted a search for documents? Or normally, if you think there's some documents over which a privilege applies, then you have to set forth what's called a privilege log, and basically a chart of the documents you have without revealing the content of the documents, but what the nature of the document is and what privilege you're asserting and generally why. And he's not done any of those things. My body, my With conservative justices holding a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, the right to abortion is in serious jeopardy. And this fall, the court heard challenges to two new restrictive laws. The first case dealt with Texas's controversial law that bans most abortions after six weeks of gestation. What's unique about this law is that it places enforcement of the law in the hands of private citizens, not the state. Joyce and I discussed the vigilante enforcement mechanism on Insider. So one point of confusion, I guess, a little bit when the statute in Texas, SB 8, says that it's against the law for there to be an abortion pretty much after the sixth week. People in their minds think, well, if something is against the law, it must be criminal and it can be enforced with the penalty of jail. As we discuss the contours of this law, it'll become clear 
that this has been a very, very clever and orchestrated, and in my view, unprincipled gambit to get around existing precedent and to use legal procedures to upset the status quo. This statute is very, very clear for quite cynical strategic reasons that no criminal prosecution can follow from breaking this law. In fact, the law states on its terms in Texas, the requirements of this subchapter shall be enforced exclusively through private civil actions. And it says, no enforcement of this subchapter may be taken or threatened by the state, a political subdivision, a district or county attorney, or an executive or administrative officer employee. So it makes it clear that under no circumstances, a violation of this statute, which purports to protect life, if you take the point of view of the pro-life people who have advocated for it, because once there's a heartbeat, it's a human life and it must be protected. But the best you can do is have private citizens sue. The penalty is about $10,000. We get to the penalty in a moment. Did it strike you as odd, just on its face as a principal matter, that folks who are advocating a pro-life position and think that this is tantamount to murder don't want a prosecution, don't want the district attorney involved, have a fairly low amount as far as penalty is concerned? I think unprincipled is a good way of characterizing that. <laughs> that was a very short answer. <laughs> <laughs> it was a short answer, but, you know, I, I mean, it's a short answer for this reason. None of us are stupid, right? We can all look at this statute and, and see it for what it is. It is a deliberate effort to permit this law to go into effect exactly in the way that the Supreme Court did, I think the only way to characterize it is evil genius, right? It is it is deeply unprincipled. It is in no way consonant with the notion of people who believe that abortion is murder, but they're, they're willing to just let the public handle it as opposed to pushing for criminal sanctions. And it's very unsettling. I, I mean, I'm just going to say that as a woman, this sort of a law becomes very unsettling because it tells you that people will stoop to no ends to violate your rights if they believe they can find a disingenuous, unprincipled way to do it, that they will do it. Another high-profile abortion case that came before the Supreme Court was a challenge to the Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of gestation. In defending the statute, Mississippi has asked the court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Joyce and I discussed the briefs on Insider. Here's what Mississippi argues in its brief in connection with the Dobbs case. I'm feeling a little bit nauseous, but go ahead. They, they <laughs> say, quote, under the Constitution, may a state prohibit elective abortions before viability? Yes. Why? They're sort of asking their own rhetorical questions in their brief. Why? Because nothing in constitutional text, structure, history, or tradition supports a right to abortion. A prohibition on elective abortions is therefore constitutional if it satisfies the rational basis review that applies to all laws, which is just sort Wait, of just can, asserting can just the fact. Can I stop you there and say, <laughs> doesn't that mean that there's no longer an individual right to gun ownership because the Second Amendment talks about militias? Yeah, I mean, it means that there's no right to anything and precedent doesn't matter at all because you can apply this argument to any amendment or any right in the Constitution. But then they go on to say, which is a very rich sentence, and I want lay people to understand that this is bizarre to write in a brief and, and very brazen and, and only can be written if you have some belief or hope or view that you have a 6-3 majority on the court of people who don't want to 
allow the right to abortion any longer. And so they write further in their brief, quote, this case is made hard only because, let me repeat that. This case is made hard only because Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey hold that the Constitution protects the right to abortion. Oh, you could say that about any case. This case is made hard only because there are other cases that say we're wrong. <laughs> right? Can't you make that argument in any case under the you know, sun? This brief is so fiercely improbable. And, and like you say, this is a brief that you can only file when you know that there's a 6-3 majority leaning strongly your direction. It's a really brazen and shameless brief that nobody would pay serious attention to but for the makeup of the court. And there's something else going on in this brief that I think is particularly dangerous and, and that also reminds me of an earlier case where rights were taken away. You know, Mississippi makes this argument about how great women's lives are. We're no longer in an era where an unwanted pregnancy could doom women to a distressful future. They talk about adoption being accessible and women obtaining professional success and rich family life because of contraception. And I am reminded so strongly of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby County, the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act, where she writes something to the effect that it's it, what the majority is doing by gutting the Voting Rights Act is throwing away an umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because they're not wet yet. And that's exactly what Mississippi is saying. Oh, look at all of this success that women have been able to achieve because they've had abortion rights. Well, let's just toss the abortion rights and assume that women will continue to be first-class citizens, which is, um, you know, I'm really annoyed by this brief the more I read it. There's been a lot of hardship this year, a lot of stress and mourning and anxiety about the future, the future of our families, our country, and our world. It can feel overwhelming. I know it often does for me. I love my job because I get to talk to some of the most interesting, smart, thoughtful, and inspiring people. And even when things feel bad, they encourage us not to give up. Here's Professor Anita Hill talking about the fight for gender equality. People have invested their lives to this in... in uh, organizations have sprung up representing people who would have been completely marginalized, whose stories never would have been heard, whose complaints never would have found their way to court, but for these organizations. So that makes me hopeful. I, I know that change is difficult, but I also know that it, change doesn't need uh, take a, a majority of people to happen. It just takes committed people to make it happen. Right. And I think we, are, we, we have so many more of those people who are committed to change. Their awareness is increased and their sense of urgency for getting uh, change and, and getting the leadership that will address this problem is clear. We've seen it in, in workplaces, like walk, people walking out of their workplaces in protest never would have happened 30 years ago. Right. And so, and then one last thing I will say, and this has to do with race, the, the whole influence of uh, black feminism has grown over the past 30 years. So within communities of color, and, and that same is true 
of other ethnic and racial communities where feminism has, has, is being heard uh, and understood as ways to resolve some of these issues or routes to resolve some of these issues. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I don't think we've ever had more tools or more people committed to using those tools than we have today. And here's Bina Venkatraman, editorial page editor of the Boston Globe and climate specialist, speaking about why we can't afford to give up hope about a sustainable future. The fact that we aren't making progress fast enough is not a reason to give up entirely. And so we have to stop talking about it that way with young people, because I do think it can be disempowering to feel like well, there's nothing we can do uh, and all the adults are letting us down. Uh, and, and then exactly to what you said, it's trying to help them see themselves as part of a story. So can you imagine yourself not as the victim of endless climate disasters that are going to be, by the way, a lot like living under COVID-19, you know, your life is disrupted, your schooling's disrupted. Can we instead help young people see themselves as like the heroes in this story, uh, banding together to save their communities, to do things that really matter, becoming the next writers, becoming the next prosecutors, becoming the next politicians that are credited with solving uh, parts of this problem. Technologists who are going to be developing new ways of absorbing carbon or new ways of creating electricity. Uh, Put their minds on how they can be part of creating a new society. So here we are. We're saying goodbye to 2021 and looking forward to what's hopefully a better 2022. We're entering the second year of the Biden-Harris administration, still grappling with the COVID-19 pandemic and starting an important midterm election year. For those of you who have lost loved ones this year, we send support and love your way. For those of you who have written to us with your questions, your stories, your activism, and your ideas, we thank you for your engagement and for your passion. The CAFE team will continue with our mission of elevating important conversations and making sense of news and issues that will shape the future of this country and our planet. In the meantime, happy holidays, happy new year, keep the faith, and as always, stay tuned. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Doss. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.